I know how blessed I am, and I'm very well aware of that. It's such a delight to be back with you. It's so good and so unbelievably freeing to know that I can leave and know that you're going to be well taken care of. So I want to thank Bob and Keith for doing such a great job of being able to handle things so well while I was gone and speaking on my behalf. This morning we return back to Acts chapter 6. I've tried to catch up. I'm still a little bit behind, so if you sent me an email, I was probably a, a few hundred of them waiting for me, so I'll get back to you by the end of the year, I promise. So just hold on a little bit. Getting the ground running this week has been an unreal uh, kind of a week with a lot to catch up on. I had a funeral, unexpected funeral, and a wedding this weekend. And uh, last night, our grandson, Julian, from Ohio, uh, was taken as an intensive care in uh, uh, Children's Hospital in Cleveland. Friday night, fell out of a little children's wagon, but hit his head on concrete. And uh, took him to the hospital, found that there was a concussion, but okay. But uh, sent him home, but they can't wake him up. So they took him back, and last night, put him in uh, intensive care. So uh, a lot of you have asked, and I can't give all the details because I don't know anymore, but it's hard to get to all of you and say that. So thank you for the prayers. Every one of us here in the room has some kind of need this morning, and I'm well aware of that. A lot of you have family, friends, people that you love who are going through deep waters physically, emotionally, relationally, and uh, I just want you to know we feel that pain, and we're certainly praying for you. And uh, when we find out any more, we'll certainly give it to you. Eric, my son-in-law, called us last night about midnight, 1230, to say what was going on. And he's preaching this morning. So I don't know how he's doing it. I'm excited about sharing the Word of God with you this morning. Couldn't wait to get back. But he preached last night, and he's preaching this morning. So it's a, a tough journey. So I trust you, uh, you keep them in mind. I know they would appreciate that. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I want you to think through this for a moment. If I were to ask you to raise your hand about how many share your faith, how many have told someone about Jesus, the God that you love, the Christ that you adore, the one that you've invited into your life, and they want to know what makes you different. What do you do on Sunday? What do you do on the weekend? Why do you have so much joy in life? How can you go through the valley of the shadow of death with a smile on your face? How do you deal with the uncertainties of life? How do you go through those crises of life? And maybe somewhere along the way, some of your friends or relatives or coworkers have asked you, how do you do that? In the middle of all of that, you've had the opportunity to share your faith. You've said, it's Jesus. I couldn't do this without Christ. And then you tell them about Jesus and how you invited him into your life and the difference that made in your life. When you do that, at some point or the other, with a friend or a relative or a coworker or a neighbor, you know they need Christ. You know that they're looking in all the wrong places. I ran into a lady a few weeks ago, and, and it just absolutely broke my heart, looking for love in all the wrong places, still coming up empty. You heard the story, obviously, this week of Robin Williams. Had everything. I've never seen anyone with that many accolades from every honorary society you can imagine, from Golden Globes to the Oscars, and the list was endless. But still inside, something missing. And you've had a friend or a relative you know like that, and they've come to you and asked the difference, and I hope, I pray, that you said it's Jesus. That's what made the difference in my life, and maybe you had the opportunity to win them to Christ. And they said, that's what I want. I want what you have found, and you have led them to Jesus. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a co-worker. You didn't take them to a convention. You had the unbelievable thrill of leading them to Jesus. There is hardly any other greater thrill on this planet than leading someone to Jesus. 
And I hope you've had that opportunity. And if you know Christ is your Savior, I hope you pray for that opportunity. Remember, a year from now, we're hoping for another four or 500 people at Community Alliance Church who you've shared faith with. And so our 110th anniversary and between now and then is going to have more and more people who have found the Jesus that you have found because you witnessed to them. You invite them here, we'd love to share the truth, and they'll hear it on a regular basis. But for you to share Jesus and to find them come to faith in Christ through your efforts is an unbelievable moment. But not everyone receives that. Some people question you. And I know that's one of the things that sometimes keeps us from sharing our faith. What if they ask me a question I don't know? Let me just help you right now. They will. They're going to ask you a question you don't know. Unless you're brilliant and know the answer to every question on life, they're going to ask you a question you don't know the answer to. I get that all the time. Questions that I don't know the answers to. That people assume because of my position and all that I know that I would and I don't. So don't ever let that intimidate you because they will ask you questions that you don't know the answer to and say, you know what, I'll find out, I'll do my best. I may not know all the answers, but this is what I do know and then share Jesus. They may be interested, you may have planted a seed and now you're praying that God waters it and you water it some more, you share a little, hey, did you think about what I shared? Did, did it make any sense? Is there anything else I can tell you? Is you want a Bible? Uh, can I give you some material? Can I share Jesus with you in another way? Some embrace it, some question it, and some reject it. Don't ever let that keep you from sharing your faith because not everybody's going to embrace it. Some are going to say to you, you know what, that's good for you, but I I'm not interested. Thanks, but I I'd rather not know. I I'd rather not you share anymore, and, and, and it's not going to hurt our relationship, but I, I just don't want to hear any more about your Jesus. And you may hear that. You may hear some say, hey, that may be okay for you, but that's not for me. And you may have some not like you at all. I don't want to hear that again. Don't tell me about your God. I'm all right like I am. Do you, you want to ask them how you're really doing with that? But they may not like what you have to say. You're going to find one this morning in Stephen who not only found out that sharing his faith wasn't always accepted, he found out that it cost him his life. You know and I know around this world today, all over the world, some of what Bob's going to face in the Middle East and a lot of other places around the world, people have not just had someone reject them, they've had their families taken away from them. They've been taken away from their family because of their faith in Christ. And there are others who have lost their life because they share their love of God and they share their love of Jesus and they were not willing to submit to anything else but to him and him alone, and it cost them everything. I'm going to talk more about that next Sunday morning. Stephen found out that sharing his faith and telling the truth wasn't always well received, and it cost him his very life. And I honestly believe that he knew that going on, but there was nothing that was going to stop him from telling the truth. You're going to find the story in Acts chapter 6 and 7, so I encourage you to get there this morning. We're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. We're going to write back into Acts, and between now and the end of the year, who knows how much longer. They're not all written yet, so I don't know for sure, but we're going to be in the book of Acts. What I love about this is it's not just a history book. It is living, breathing Word of God. And what you'll see from it is right on the pages of Yahoo and USA Today and Bing and all the other resources that you'll find news about, about what it costs to share faith in Christ. 
Now, Stephen's story is in Acts 6 and 7. I'm not going to read it all this morning. I said to you on phone tree yesterday, I hope you didn't hang up on me. And by the way, we do know who you are if you do. And you listen to it, and then you said, okay, hey, hey, Dan, Bob, Grace, whatever your name is, we've got to read a couple of chapters tonight. I want to be ready for tomorrow. I'm not ever going to go through them all, but I want you to be prepared. Stephen is one of the six chosen. You're in Acts 6 now, so get your Bibles out and your sermon notes. By the apostles who said, look, our priorities are this, so we're going to hand that off. They're never saying one is more important than the other. Don't ever read Acts 6 by saying, well, the ministry of the word and prayer is more important than waiting on tables, so we're certainly not going to do that. Beware of a pastor who can't wait on tables. Beware of a servant of God who can't minister to people in the down and outs of their life. Beware of a pastor who's too good or any leader at all who's too good to take care of somebody in a difficult spot. I won't get into any stories, but those of you who are in the medical field, I love you so much. To see what you do walking with people through the end of life, through the difficulties of life, and being able to take care of people in, in all of their issues and all their circumstances. But beware of people who just won't get their hands dirty. In Acts chapter 6, you see in those days, a number of Hellenistic Jews began to complain about the fact that the Hebraic Jews, because their widows were being taken care of and others were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So in Acts 6 verse 2, the 12 got together. They said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. So you choose seven men from among you, and this is the criteria, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And we're going to turn that responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, that proposal seemed good to everyone, and they chose Stephen, who we'll talk about this morning, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit and six others as well. They presented those men to the apostles, and they prayed over them and laid their hands on them. Now, the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, Stephen, one of those seven, was a man full of God's grace and power performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. Asia, And they began to argue with Stephen. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him when he spoke. Remember what Jesus promised us? Look, if you get in tough spots and you don't know what to say, my Spirit will tell you what to say. I mean, somewhere along the way, Stephen didn't have an opportunity to go to seminary. From the time he was chosen to he's doing this, he didn't go to seminary. He was totally dependent on the Spirit of God. Now, God's called you. You better do the training and the reading and the preparation and all that goes with that. But in this case, God gave him what he promised that he would, gave him wisdom as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some other men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Look at what they saw, that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, you have your sermon notes in front of you this morning. You'll know when I do sermon notes that they're pretty much a a small synopsis of my script. Because I want you more than just 
little bullet points to see the flow and to have some principles. I spent hours on this. You're hearing it in 35 minutes. I want you to process it. One of the first things you'll notice is how God blesses Stephen's willingness to be used by God in really some wonderfully marvelous ways. What God wants in your notes is your availability, our yielding to the Spirit's control. He supplies the abilities, and I guarantee you he will supply the opportunities. Now, a lot of times the ability is already there. What God wants is our willingness to use them for his glory. You and I both know people who have enormous abilities but are so full of themselves they have no room for the Holy Spirit. And others who simply say, Lord, I'm not sure where or how or what you're going to do with me, but I'm telling you, I am so available to you, and I'll take advantage of every opportunity you give me. And God infuses them with even more abilities than they already had. What God wants is our willingness to say, here I am. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know where, but you use me. And all of my gifts and all of my talents that I know have come from you, I lay at your feet. And I want them to be used by you. The other thing you'll notice in this text, and there's a whole other sermon series that would go with that, but in this context here, you'll see that the ability to perform signs and wonders move from the apostles to others as well. A lot of theologians still say that the signs and wonders gifts, miraculous and healing and interventions like that, ended at the end of the apostolic age, and I absolutely do not agree with that at all. Or that it was reserved just for the apostles. Or that even ministry was reserved just for those in a public place. What you see here in this context is Stephen simply making himself available to God. Is not one of the apostles, not one of the twelve, not one of the original chosen one, but just said, God, what do you want to do through me? And you see here in this context, God does some incredible things. It wasn't an apostle. It continued to move on down through the ages to men and women just like you and I who say, Spirit of God, Fall on me, land on me, let me do, as we sang just a moment ago, what you want to do, and I'll do it for you and for your glory. Look at what it says about him. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace, full of power, full of wisdom. This guy was sold out to Jesus. Full of means there's no room for anything else. Not like I talked a moment ago, people are so gifted and so full of themselves that the Holy Spirit doesn't have any room to work. They just simply want to be used by God, but full and running over with Him. I found it interesting this week in the Daily Bread of all weeks, they're talking about Stephen. They told a story of a guy in Austin, Texas in the late 1800s who came in to try to make it rain. Had all kinds of balloons and explosions in the air to possibly somehow, in the midst of all of that drought, to get it to rain. And one of the things that I saw at the end of that section, it says, there was a lot of power but no effect. A lot of noise but no results. Know anybody like that? A lot of noise. A lot of celebration. A lot of wow. A lot of razzle-dazzle. But not a whole lot of depth and not a whole lot of results. Just a lot of noise. Stephen wasn't one of those. Controlled completely by the spirit of the living God. No half-hearted Christianity in this guy. Y'all remember Keith's sermon last Sunday morning with the pitchers? I know you weren't here, but he had pitchers. And he poured them in a water. And I, I, I thought, that's just fascinating. What did you use for pitchers? And how'd you get the holes in the bottom? He said, I went to the kitchen, got some pictures and dr- pitchers and drilled holes in the bottom. <laughs> well, that's pretty creative. <laughs> Venice and dinner, you guys that are serving this fall are going to have a lot of fun with those pitchers. You don't have to pour this way, just hold it this way and the water will fall out. 
Stephen had no holes in his bucket, man. He had no holes in his pitcher. Full of Christ, running over and letting God use him in amazing ways. Remember how profound and powerful that word picture was that Keith presented to you last week. There are a lot of people like that. Holes all over, and we all leak. I get that. But Stephen was one who said, Lord, I leak, but I want to be in a place where I'm constantly being fed and overflowing with you. There are a lot of different responses to that kind of person. Some admire them. Billy Graham's of life, who at 90 years old, still following God with passion and enthusiasm, who's been respected all of his ministry life. Some are intimidated by that kind of person. They don't know what to do with them. They love God, and, and you just don't know how to handle them, and some don't like it at all. Some respond with hatred, animosity, and resentment. In this case, obviously, that's what happened with a Sanhedrin, they brought Stephen in front of him. And look at verse 15. Knowing that this could possibly cost him his life, look at what you see. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. Can you imagine the burning look of hatred and animosity? I don't know if you've ever had anybody that just couldn't stand you and looked at you with such animosity. That's the way they're looking at Stephen. And instead of cowering in fear and trembling underneath it, he's just smiling, it says, like the face of an angel. Look at what I have in your sermon notes for you. Stephen says, I don't care about the outcome of this. So full of faith, it really doesn't matter the outcome of the trial. My faith is in God and God alone. It's not in what you guys do. It's not in what you guys think. It's not in what you guys say. It's not in what you guys do to me. My faith is in God and God alone. That gives you amazing confidence to face whatever comes your way. I have no idea how Eric's preaching this morning. Except that I know after putting his son in intensive care last night, he's standing before Almighty God, and that little boy is standing before Almighty God, and he's letting him in his feet. And he's declaring the word of God. The outcome is in God's hand. To know that God is going to be with you in every single circumstance gives you faith to face face anything. And that's what you see in him. He has a chance to respond. And he doesn't respond to their criticism or their hatred. Instead, he takes the opportunity to preach a sermon. One of the longest sermons In the New Testament, certainly the longest sermon in the book of Acts. You think I preached a long time? You ought to have been there. You know Paul preached such a long sermon that someone actually fell asleep in a message. Could you believe that? I've never seen that in all of my ministry life, that anybody would fall asleep in a message. Paul preached so long, a guy fell asleep. Stephen preached one of the longest sermons in the New Testament. And basically what he does is rehearse the book of Exodus. He said, look, do you have any idea who you are? Do you have any idea what God's done? We are one of the most blessed peoples on the planet. God heard our cry. God sent a messenger. God rescued us. God performed the miraculous in front of us over and over again. He rehearses all of the blessings of God. He goes through almost all the book of Exodus in one short sermon and tells them everything God had done. He said, we are a people who have responded to God in unbelievable faith and obedience. Abraham and Joseph and Moses. He said, we're also a people who've had an undeniable history of rejection and rebellion. Now, I don't know about you, 
But when I first looked at that and listened to what Stephen was saying, as he was saying it to the nation of Israel, I got to believe that if Stephen were here today, he'd say the same things to the nation of America. A few weeks ago, I was listening to a series of messages from the Watchmen on the Wall. It was a convention of spiritual leaders around the planet. And near the end of one of them, his name is Rabbi Jonathan Kahn. He's written a book called Harbinger. A lot of people don't agree with some of his take out of that. I totally get that. But he shared a message. He said, I have the opportunity to speak on Capitol Hill. And I took advantage of that opportunity, and I recorded it, and I sent it to Jason, and he was able to get it together for me. And I knew when I came to this series, it's hard for us to grasp what it would be like for Stephen to stand up and say what he did to those in the nation of Israel. And then when I saw this clip, I thought, here is a modern-day Stephen who has the same chance and opportunity, knowing it could cost him a lot, but to speak to another nation called the United States of America. Four minutes. I want you to hear it. You've got to listen carefully to this. Day one. George Washington lays his hand on the Bible in the capital city. And America as we know it comes into existence. He then enters the halls of Congress, delivers his first ever presidential address. And in those first words ever spoken by an American president lies a prophetic warning to this nation. Only two civilizations in human history came into existence dedicated from conception to the will and purposes of God. The first was called Israel. The second is called America. America was to be a city on a hill, a light to the world, from the words of the Jewish rabbi from Nazareth. And God blessed this nation as no nation has ever been blessed, to unparalleled heights of prosperity and power. But on America's first day came a prophetic warning. It was this. The propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right which heaven itself hath ordained. In other words, if America ever turns away from God, if it ever disregards the word and ways of God, then the smiles of heaven, the blessings of God, will be removed from this land. We stand tonight on Capitol Hill in the city named after the one who gave that prophetic warning to ask, can a nation drive out the name of God from its public squares? and the word of God from its schools, and the ways of God from its culture, and still expect the smiles of God to shine upon it? Can the blood of 50 million unborn children cry out to heaven from this land, and the smiles of heaven still remain? Members of Congress, can a government call good evil and evil good, and forge laws that war against the laws of the Almighty, and the smiles of heaven still remain? Supreme Court justices, can you strike down the statutes of the Almighty and overturn the judgments of the Most High and still expect the smiles of heaven to remain? And Mr. President, can you place your left hand on the word of God to assume your office and then with your right hand sign laws that break the very word upon which you swore and still expect the smiles of heaven to remain? The voice of our first president cries out to us tonight and answers, no, you cannot do so, and still expect the smiles of heaven to remain upon this land. When judgment came to ancient Israel, the destruction returned to the very same place, on that, the place where the nation had been dedicated to God in prayer. The calamity returned to the nation's ground of dedication. On America's first day, after the prophetic warning was given, our first government walked on foot to the appointed ground on which to pray and dedicate this nation to God. That place is America's ground of consecration. Where was it? America was dedicated to God and her sacred ground of consecration is ground zero. 
On that day, a shockwave went forth from that sacred ground and struck Federal Hall, the place where Washington gave the warning of what would happen if this nation ever turned away from God. And the power of that force cracked open that foundation, and the smiles of heaven were removed from the land. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. America has risen by the hand of God. And without that hand, it cannot endure. The voice of God cries out, return America, and I will have mercy on you. And tonight we bear witness from Capitol Hill that the warning of our first president is true and that our hope is not in the White House or the Supreme Court or the Capitol or Wall Street. Our hope is in the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our hope is in Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the same yesterday, today, and forever. To him alone the nation is dedicated, and him alone is his salvation. So let the word go forth this night to this nation. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Let the will of God be done, let the name of God be lifted up, and let this city on the hill again shine with the light of the fire of the glory of the living God in the name of Yeshua, Jesus, the light of the world, the glory of Israel, and the hope of these United States. So help us God. Amen. Stephen were here today. If Stephen were standing in Washington, D.C. today, he'd say the same thing. He said, you people have rejected God over and over again. Your hearts and your ears in verse 51 of chapter 7 are still uncircumcised. Just like your ancestors, you always resist the Spirit of God. Was there ever a prophet or a, your ancestor didn't persecute? They killed even the righteous one. And now you betrayed and murdered him. And you received the law. And he began to speak at them with power and confidence. When the members of the Sanhedrin, verse 54, heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. <clears throat> at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their feet at a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell down on his knees and cried out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And when he said all of this, he died. Three different responses to this message this morning I want to share with you. First is the reaction of those who heard it. The NIV says they were furious and gnashed their teeth. The King James, instead of using the word furious, says they were cut to the heart. That's even a better translation of it. It's the same exact phrase that we saw in chapter 2, verse 37, when Peter preached a very similar sermon. Peter said the same things. You killed the messengers. You killed our prophets. You killed the very Son of God. You nailed him to a cross. And when he got done with that sermon, it was, they were all brought under conviction. The very first response of them being brought under conviction was, what do we do? When Peter says this and Stephen says this, both sermons were incredibly controversial and extremely confrontational. But the response is vastly different. When Peter got done, they looked at him and said, what do we do? You're right. We did do that. What do we do now? And Peter very clearly said to them, repent and be baptized. Submit your life to Christ. And thousands did. 
A lot of times the face of conviction looks like brokenness and repentance. Sometimes it looks like here, rage. And those of you who have shared your faith may have seen both sides. In this case here, it said they were angry and gnashed their teeth. They were filled with phrase. That gnashing of with, uh, te- they're gnashing their teeth phrases also in Matthew. Talks about those in hell. Where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth. Hell is going to be full of angry people. Who in their living were stiff-necked, hard-hearted, hard of hearing. Who would never listen to the truth and always resisted the Spirit of God. You want to know who's in heaven and who's in hell? These two groups. The ones in heaven are the ones who were confronted with the claims of Christ, and they knew that they were right, and they knew the claims were right. They heard that Jesus was the only way, and they repented of their sins, and they followed Christ. They submitted themselves to him. They bowed their knees to Jesus and said, Peter, you're right. He's our only hope, our only salvation, and thousands flooded to Christ. Here, they did the opposite. They were hard of heart. They refused to listen They resisted the spirit. They were full of rage. You see, it's not about knowing the Bible. There are a lot of people that know the Bible. They don't know the Lord of the Bible. They don't know Christ the Savior. They all know the truth. They've heard the truth. They know there's a God out there somewhere. They just don't want to have anything to do with him. It's not about knowing the Bible or knowing the truth. It's what I do with what I know. It's what I do with this truth that the only way to heaven is Jesus. Some people live now like they'll live in hell. Angry, hard-hearted, always resisting the Spirit. Some of them, maybe not here, will sit in a church on a Sunday morning. They'll hear the truth. They'll know that Christ is the only way. They'll hear the gospel presented to them. They'll stay there stiff, hard, unresistant, unyielding, and they'll walk out the same. They did their thing. They checked off a mark. They went to church, but don't let it go any further than that. God speaks and God moves. Some love it. Some are moved by it. Some respond to it. Some are healed by it. Some are afraid. And some hate it. They resist it. They cleanse their feet, cleanse their teeth, and they have God shot out of their lives. The Spirit of God has no impact on their lives, and sadly, they die that way. You see it in the response of those to Stephen's message. They hate the message. They kill the messenger. You see, Stephen, he is alive more in his dying than they are in their living. Look at his demeanor, peace. When he says, receive my spirit, it's the real him. You and I both know that we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. The body, the shell, or a tent that Paul calls it is the outer you. Who you really are is what's inside. You and I both know there are some people with an amazing outer shell, but inside they're really empty and not a lot of stuff there. And others who by the world's standards may not have the best-looking outer self, but wow, are they wonderful people. When you and I lose a loved one, we lay their body into the ground. But when they have Christ as Savior, they immediately go into the presence of Almighty God. Stephen gives an unbelievable glimpse of heaven. And I believe that God, in just that one moment of time, peels back the curtain of heaven just for a moment, and 2,000 years later gives you and I the exact same glimpse that Stephen got. 
I looked at that section of Scripture and I thought about all the funerals that I've done and all the people that I've looked into their eyes and they lay their loved one in the ground they feel so hollow and empty at the moment and they don't know Christ and then I've watched others who do the same thing and although they sorrow and they hurt and they don't want to say goodbye to a friend, a relative, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, or a son or a daughter, but they know they knew Christ and they know the moment they left this world, they went into the presence of Jesus. And they know that's there in theology. But if you look in the book of Acts, God actually lets you see it just for a moment. And he pulls back the curtain of heaven and he says to you and I exactly what he did to Stephen. I want to give you a glimpse of something amazing. I don't want you to be left in the dark. I don't want you to wonder and not know. So let me tell you what happens when you die. And for that one moment in time, he opens it up and lets us see it. It's incredible. What you and I most often know about Jesus when it talks about him in heaven, it says he's sitting at the right hand of God. It's a picture of his completed work on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't mean my body had just died. He meant what I came to do, I've done. Everything we talked about God from the beginning of time, I completed and I died for their sins. It's finished. All that we planned and prepared for from time on end is now done. But what Stephen sees is what happens after that for those of us who know our friends and relatives and moms and dads and sons and daughters knew Christ. Jesus is not just sitting at the right hand of God. He is standing to receive them home. I don't know about you, but I love that word. What I need to know when my friend and my relative and my mom and my dad or a brother or a sister or someone I love to death knows Jesus as Lord and Savior, I need to know that I'm not just having them go into darkness somewhere. I need to know that the God I love and the God I preach and the Jesus I adore is standing there to greet them. You're not going to meet Peter at the pearly gates. I want to diffuse that theology right now. You okay with that? You're not going to meet Peter at the pearly gates. You get a better gift than that, you get to see Jesus. And he welcomes you home. For those of you who lost a relative or a friend or somebody that you know knows Christ, I want to give you the same gift that Stephen got. And although it's just a short phrase in all the New Testament, it is an unbelievably powerful verse that tells us for the last 2,000 years, look, I want you to know how much God loves you, that if you know Christ is your Savior, when you get out of this life and you walk into the next one, he's going to be standing right there with his arms open wide. He's going to say, come on home. Man, that is a gift. You can't buy that with gold. You couldn't get all the gold in heaven and have any better gift than that. And Stephen, I believe, gives us in just that moment what God would want us to know 2,000 years later, here I am, and I want to bring you home. In your sermon notes, there's a power of the Spirit to live, there's a power of the Spirit to serve, and there's the power of the Spirit to die. We don't like to think about it much, but you and I both know life is unpredictable. Every single day of our lives, we're on the edge of life and death. I know I've shared it with you before, and this week I did a funeral for my favorite uncle, and as I began to get up, and he was 90 years old, and we're talking about life, and read the scripture in the Psalms where it said the average life is 70 or 80, and if by reason of strength it will go on downhill from there. And I said, to be honest with you, in my early days, and I think I've shared this with you before, I assumed that all of my funerals would be people in their 70s or 80s. 
until my first one was a 16-year-old boy, a 2-year-old girl, a 9-year-old little boy, and a 21-year-old Marine. And all of a sudden, at a very early age in ministry, I found out very quickly and very difficultly that life is really unpredictable, extremely fragile. And a lot of my sermons and services would not be for 80-year-olds, 70-year-olds, and 90-year-olds. It'd be people in their 40s and 30s and newborns and people in the prime of life who lead this world. From that point on, I said, God, whatever opportunities you give me, I want to make sure that everyone I know and people I love hear the truth, that there's only one way to heaven, and it's Jesus and Jesus alone. There's not a thousand hills to heaven, and not all paths lead to God. There's only one way to heaven, and it's in Christ and Christ alone. And Stephen shared that message, and they resisted, and they walked away, and probably at the end of their lives walked into outer darkness and into hell. And they heard the truth, and they missed it. I love you enough and I've always will till the end of my ministry life love you to share with you the truth. Maybe every single one of you here this morning know Christ as your Savior. But I want to ask you straight up a question I know you've heard a hundred times before. If you were to leave this world today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? A lot of times they ask that question and people will say, I sure hope so. Plan to. I want to. Why would you want to debate or have a little bit of a doubt about that. You can doubt a lot of things in life. You don't want to wonder about your eternal significance and your eternal salvation. You don't want to wonder about eternity. You don't want to leave this world saying, I sure hope I go to heaven. Like to. You want to know. I love the words of John when he said, look, I've written all of this so you can know you have eternal life. You do not have to leave this world without knowing Jesus. And so that when you do leave this world and you know Christ is your Savior, you committed yourself to Him, you have Him there to welcome you home and you walk into the streets of glory and you participate with all of God's children down through the ages for time on end. But you have to start with a decision to let Jesus into your life and to submit your life to Him. Some embrace it, some question it, some reject it. Please, please, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, open up. It is the best decision you'll ever make. Let me pray with you. Father, your word really is sharper than a two-edged sword. Let's us see truth as truth is. I love this place. I love these people. And so, Father, I ask in the name of Jesus and by the power of the cross that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you as Savior, that today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, today, before noon today, they will invite you into their life so that they can know, not wonder or hope or wish, they can know that if they leave this world, they'll see you face to face. For those who have lost someone they love so deeply, thank you so very much. It's an amazing gift you gave us and the glimpse you gave Stephen. And even if we don't get it, you gave it to us in him. And, and so I thank you for that, for the assurance that it brings and the assurance that it gives. Thank you for your word. 
It is powerful. It's living and breathing, and I'm so delightful that we're just not setting a history book. But we're setting truth that brings life and death. Help us, as you said a long time ago in the book of Deuteronomy, choose life. Choose life in Jesus' name. A lot of times after a message like this, I ask you to keep your heads bowed and close your eyes or raise your hand. And I certainly could do that. I never, ever want to embarrass anyone and and won't today. We're not going to sing 22 verses of a closing song that I grew up with, just hoping someone will come and come forward and accept Jesus. I'm offering you the greatest gift of all. And I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, don't walk out of here if you don't know Christ and if you don't know Jesus. I'm going to dismiss you all. And it won't look obvious. I don't want to embarrass you, but I don't want you to leave and not make this decision. Some elders here can pray with you if you have other needs. I just want to share Jesus with you. Keith and others are here as well, and and they can share Jesus with you too. So if you don't know Christ, I'd love for you to come and invite him into your life. It literally, it'll change your life.